The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich. If you, the Civil War listener, were asked the meaning of the phrase, the devil's toupee, You wouldn't answer that it has to do with Satan's hairpiece. You would know that it's the answer that Union Cavalry General John Buford gave to the commander of the First Corps on July 1, 1863, when Reynolds arrived at Gettysburg and asked Buford, What's the matter, John? The devil's to pay was Buford's way of saying that the whole Army of Northern Virginia was in front of his single cavalry division, and the outcome of the battle would depend on how long he could hold it off. We'll find out how they did from Eric J. Wittenberg, author of The Devil's Toupee, John Buford at Gettysburg, A History and Walking Tour. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, where it's a beautiful spring day in April of 2016. Baseball season has begun. Tonight is the opening game of the Stanley Cup playoffs, where the Detroit Red Wings will be in action for the 20-something consecutive year, longer than the Carolina Hurricanes have been in existence. And that applies to many other teams. Always good news 
for Wings fans. Uh, here on campus, the other day I put up a poster uh, or just printed a, a, a graphic off the internet and, and stuck it on the door of my office for a few days and took it down. Uh, it was a picture of a two World War II aircraft, a P-30, P-47, and then a P-38 flying right behind it, and underneath the caption said, very, very frightening. It turns out that the intersection of people who know World War II aircraft names and the lyrics to Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody is quite small. Uh, no one seemed to get that, uh, the, the history geek humor involved that in that. Uh, but I'm guessing that all of you out there listening uh, probably do, so I won't have to explain it. Uh, if you're confused, send me an email, but uh, it's a P-47 and a P-38, get it? Anyway, uh, moving along, uh, speaking of things students don't get, uh, we had a midterm last uh, two weeks ago in the United States History Survey course, uh, the second half of U.S. history, of course, I enjoy teaching. doesn't have the Civil War in it, but lots of other interesting topics. And just out of curiosity, I decided this time, instead of posting the grades, I would hand them back in lecture to see how many students attend lecture. We have two lectures a week and then a section meeting. Students all come to the section meetings. I, I see them there. I look at the seating chart. Attendance is uh, extremely good, very gratifying. But in lectures, there's no t they, there's no way to tell who's there. It's a big hall, 150 students, and I would guess maybe a hundred or even fewer show up. So I did a quick check of the numbers. I gave back exams on Monday and then went back to the roster to see the comparative averages of the students who showed up to get their exams and the ones whose exams are still in a big stack here in my office, the blue books that I'm staring at. And it turns out it makes a difference of anywhere from five to 10 points per in each of the, the four sections. Uh, you do five to 10 points better on an exam if you actually go to class than if you don't. Maybe the gap should be larger, I don't know, but it was reassuring to see that, that something good is happening in lecture, even if the students cannot be forced to drink from the fountain of knowledge that the North Carolina taxpayers so generously provide them. Uh, in contrast, uh, no taxpayers support this show. Nobody does. Oh, well, you do with your generous contributions to Civil War Talk Radio. But uh, likewise, no one requires you to come here. We're all in this because it interests all of us. And we like to learn things like the story of John Buford at Gettysburg that we'll talk about tonight. Or next week's show on April 20th when Peter Carlson will join us to talk about Junius and Albert's Adventures in the Confederacy, a Civil War Odyssey. Promises to be an interesting uh, book. The following week, April 27th, Stephen Town from Indiana and Purdue at Indianapolis, IUPUI, will join us. He has written a book on a fascinating topic, Surveillance and Spies in the Civil War, Exposing Confederate Conspiracies in America's Heartland. And then on May 4th, following Wednesday, no live show, it's final exam week, and we'll be seeing who was naughty and who was nice, who actually came to lecture and grading exams that night, so won't be able to join you that evening. We'll be back uh, the following week, the 11th, a couple 
potential guests are jockeying for position. They've got three or four people uh, set up for me, but we're just trying to figure out who goes what week. So keep an eye on www.impedimentsofwar. And if I get my act in gear and send a message to uh, Mark Gaffney, who runs the site, he'll be able to put up the news of who's going to show up. And if I don't, uh, it's my fault, not his. But I guarantee you, good guests coming up in uh, in uh, May of 2016. That's also the month of the This Hallowed Ground tour of Civil War sites, May 21 to 29. Contact Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours down in New Orleans. They'll set you up. Come and join us on the tour. It's a week-long bus tour of some of the best Civil War sites and is highly, uh, uh, highly recommended. Um, as I'm sitting here at the computer, uh, live news flashes across from the Brunswick Civil War Roundtable in Southport, North Carolina. They have just reached their 1,000th active member. I spoke there a few years ago. There is no Civil War Roundtable like the one, the, the Brunswick uh, group in terms of sheer size. There were 700 members when I was there. Now it's up to 1,000. A lot of uh, us belong to or speak at roundtables with a dozen or two dozen or even 60 or 70 people. How did they do it? They've got 1,000. Uh, it's really uh, remarkable. Maybe they'll tell us the secret one day. Um, but some of it is just enthusiasm. They generously say it's because of good speakers. Uh, I, th- I think it, the, a lot of the groups have good speakers, but but that's really something, a thousand folks. Congratulations to them. Um, so lots going on in the Civil War world. Uh, it's good to hear from uh, uh, folks out there who attend these meetings, who listen to the show. Got a nice email from folks who went on last year's Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours uh, travel. So as I say hi to Arthur and Lois. Uh, hope uh, get a chance to get up to the West Coast and visit with you sometime. Uh, lots going on. Take part in it. Go to your Civil War roundtable. Go on a tour. Ours are a different one. And uh, help contribute to Civil War knowledge and interest in preservation. Tonight we are talking with someone who has done a lot of that, written a lot about Civil War topics. Uh, our guest is Eric J. Wittenberg. It turns out this is April Civil War Cavalry Brigadier General Month at Civil War Talk Radio, apparently. Last week we had a book about Confederate General Rufus Berenger. This week's topic, John Buford, is considerably better known. Uh, the, the man who set the stage, controlled the pace of fighting on the first day at Gettysburg, the man who gave Sam Elliott the role of a lifetime, uh, who introduced the phrase good ground into the movie at Gettysburg. Uh, there's a lot known about John Buford. What's not known about him is why it's taken so long for someone to write a book uh, about him and his activities at the pivotal Battle of Gettysburg. So we will find out tonight from uh, from our guest, Eric J. Wittenberg. Eric, are you there? I'm here, Jerry. Nice talking to you again. It's been a while. It had. I couldn't believe it has been ten years since you were last on the show. I would, every month or two, I'm making up the schedule, seeing who we can invite next, and I think, oh, Wittenberg's got a new book, but but he was just on, and then I look at the roster, and no, it's been years. So I'm delighted uh, to have you back and on the show. At least I'm not sitting in a truck stop like I was the last time. 
Yeah, you, that was we were talking about Civil War cavalry in general that day, and you you were stuck somewhere. What was that story? We were on our, you know, I live in Columbus, Ohio, and my my I grew up in Reading, Pennsylvania, which is a good seven hour drive, and we were on our way to my parents' house when it came time to do the interview, and because you didn't want me to do it on a cell phone, I didn't have too many other options but to stop, and uh, we ended up in a truck stop along Interstate 70 in, south, in western Pennsylvania. Well, that was, that was the, to the benefit of the people at the truck stop if they got to hear uh, what you were saying. And plus, we probably saved a life. You don't want to be talking on the cell phone uh, while you're driving or even when you're a passenger and distracting the driver with tales of Civil War cavalry. Probably uh, true. So, uh, so you're you're still in uh, Columbus, Ohio. As a Michigan man, I find that hard to overlook, but I'll, I'll do my best. Um, are you still practicing law? How's that going? Uh, I unfortunately am because the, um, the bills have to be paid, and sadly, my historical work doesn't come close to paying the bills. And as my wife likes to say, she likes to live indoors and be able to buy dog food. So, uh, practicing <laughs> law remains a necessity, and. Uh, uh, busy. I mean, you, you you were in the field. You know what it's in, what mm-hmm. it's like. Um, uh, I joined a firm last summer, and uh, since I did, unfortunately, my workload has exploded. So it's just uh, one of those things. You have to deal with it. Well, it's true. It's good to have something to uh, provide balance, though. And when I was practicing law, it was reading Bruce Catton at lunch that kept me from uh, losing all perspective on, on life, uh, although eventually it persuaded me to just go back and do this full-time. Um, but uh, you've certainly been able to produce a number of, of books uh, while working, and I, I find that really a, a remarkable achievement. Uh, There's actually a talk- relatively simple explanation for it. But what is that? I have a bad case of ADD. It's impossible for me to just sit on the couch and watch TV in the evenings. I have to do something to keep my brain occupied. And uh, my wife had a, a job that had her out in the evenings at one time, and there was nobody here but me and the dogs, and that's when I started writing seriously, and it's carried over. It's the way I keep my brain occupied in the evenings. Well, that's an excellent thing to do. I, uh, I, I don't know if you know Bradley Gottfried, uh, uh, personally or just from his books, but he, he is a community college uh, system president and has a job uh, that, like like yours, uh, but maybe more so, an academic administrator who works ridiculous hours and pumps out the books. He says he writes them at three in the morning, as I recall. Uh, I don't do that. <laughs> that I'm that, asleep that, at that hour of the night. <laughs> So this current this, this is your latest uh, published book. I know you're working on another one. Uh, what Actually, brought you just to had the one go to the printer the last week? Excellent, excellent. Well, we, we will look forward to that. That's Winchester is the topic. Yeah, that's a, a book I did with my friend Scott Mingus, who I know has been on your show. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a, a really detailed tactical study of the Second Battle of Winchester. Uh, using uh, a tremendous volume of sources that nobody's ever seen before, and we're we're really proud of it. It's uh, almost 500 pages long, and it's it's we think it's a good study. Uh, well, what that I, I was going to start asking you about the Buford book, but now you I've got a sidetrack here. 
Um, do we need 500 pages on Second Winchester? Well, it's it, specifically not. I wouldn't say necessarily, but there's a there's a lot more to the story than just the three days of the battle, and, and that's really part of what where the length comes from. The first portion of the book is really sort of a social history of Winchester uh, during the time that we'll, that Robert H. Milroy was in command there and had his headquarters there and the incredibly harsh regime that he imposed on the citizenry. And that's something so, that hadn't really been touched on. So it's not all 500 pages of, of, of tactics, of small unit maneuvers. Okay. Correct. That, that um, I, I enjoy the, uh, the small unit tactics, uh, reading about regiments and even companies and where they go and how they fight. Uh, but I find a certain amount of it is satisfying. And then after that, it, it just starts to blur a book like yours uh, that I'm looking at here on John Buford at Gettysburg is, to me, just the right size. In a couple hundred pages, it sums up uh, the detailed tactics of a truly important engagement. No one can say that the first day of Gettysburg didn't matter to the Civil War. So that, to me, seems the opposite end of the spectrum of, of 500 pages of out of battle that's less well-known. So and I, I certainly appreciate that, and of course, part of one, there, there's a lengthy discussion about what happened in Milroy's command after the battle. That again is a is a part of the story that's never been told in any kind of detail. And half of them ended up POWs in Richmond, and the other half ended up marching all the way to uh, the modern town of Everett, Pennsylvania, which at the time was known as, as Bloody Run, and the ordeal that those poor guys had to had to deal with. And then we also finally address. Uh, Milroy's attempts to clear his name and get restored to field command, and uh, it's ironic that that one of the few battlefield defeats that Nathan Bedford Forrest ever suffered uh, was at the hands of, of all people, Robert H. Milroy. Go figure. Hmm. So, uh, so there really is a lot going on here, more than just a, a single. Uh, relatively obscure battlefield conflict. It, it's hardly fair. Uh, I obviously haven't seen the book yet. It's not out yet, so I, I don't know what I'm talking about, if, if that's conceivable. Uh, that's fair. Uh, so I, I'm hardly in a position to, to say anything else. But I, I am fascinated by the different ways authors approach these topics and, and what uh, and, and what's important, what's significant, what, what we decide to write about. Well, as I said a moment ago, this is really a, uh, was I, I found a, a very enjoyable uh, piece to read about a very significant tactical moment in the Civil War. We're going to take a short break and get into the details of what happened to John Buford's cavalry on the first day at Gettysburg. We'll do that with author Eric J. Wittenberg, author of The Devils to Pay, John Buford at Gettysburg, A History and Walking Tour. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com 
Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Eric J. Wittenberg, author of the Devils to Pay, John Buford at Gettysburg, a history and walking tour. Uh, we didn't really establish in the first segment what happened on the first day at Gettysburg. Most of you listening already have some pretty good idea of that. If, if you're new to the field, uh, the 10-second version is John Buford's cavalry division by itself stopped the uh, one-third of the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia just long enough for the rest of the Union forces to get to the field and make the battle into the uh, struggle that it became instead of a, a Confederate decisive victory on the first day. Buford's role is what this book is about. Uh, Eric, what, what got you interested in writing about Buford specifically? Oh, it's something I set out to do really in 1992 when I undertook to uh, try and and do some study of Buford's role at the Battle of Gettysburg, and my initial contribution to it was an article that that was published in issue 11 of Gettysburg Magazine, and that in turn triggered me to attempt to cobble together a full-length biography of John Buford that failed for the reason that his wife burned his papers when he died, and there just simply wasn't enough material to try and do something full length. So I set it aside for a number of years and then came back to it and realized that there was one one piece of the Gettysburg Cavalry story that I hadn't tackled, and it was the one that was nearest and dearest to my heart, which was the story of John Buford and his troopers on the first day, and I decided the time had come to rectify that. and. Uh, in a lot of ways, it was closing the loop for me. It was the culmination of 
20-some years' worth of research and in many ways was the fulfillment of my life's work. Uh, I'm not done, but it was, uh, in many ways, seemed like I was f- finishing a, a major chapter in my life, and it also uh, filled in that gap because now I have published something uh, in a book on every significant cavalry action in the Gettysburg campaign. Every one, except for the battles of Aldi, Middleburg, and Upperville. They're the only ones, and, and I've left those to my friend Bob O'Neill, who's the authority. Well, the, the, uh, there was a lot of significant action, cavalry action, at Gettysburg, but uh, surely none more significant than what happened on the first day. Uh, who was John Buford? What, what, what should we know about him? You know, he's a fascinating fellow. He has extensive roots uh, in, in the military. And his uh, grandfather and both of his great uncles uh, had service in the years uh, well before the founding of the country. Uh, his, his, one of his great uncles was uh, on the Braddock Expedition and was uh, a company commander who was mortally wounded in action at the, the Battle of Point Pleasant during Lord Dunmore's War in 1775. And then that man's name was Thomas Buford. Um, his other great-uncle, Colonel Abraham Buford, is, of course, the uh, victim of, of the uh, massacre, so-called massacre, by Bannister Tarleton's troopers at the uh, at the Battle of Waxhaws in South Carolina in 1781, and uh, Abraham Buford was uh, a colonel in the Revolutionary Army, and his uh, his grandfather Simeon Buford served in the Culpeper Minutemen, and then also served under his brother's command for much of the war. So uh, there's a long martial history, and uh, the. Simeon and Abraham were both given uh, large bounties of land in Kentucky in the years after the war as a reward for their their service. Uh, they were among the founders of the thoroughbred horse racing industry in in Kentucky. And in fact, one of uh, uh, Simeon's sons, John Buford's uncle, uh, was a fellow by the name of uh, Colonel Billy Buford, as he was known, who in the years prior to the Civil War was known as the leading breeder of thoroughbred horses uh, in the world. And uh, when Billy Buford died, his son Abraham took over the, the family business. And uh, Abe, of course, interrupted that horse racing uh, career to serve as a brigadier general under Nathan Bedford Forrest during the Civil War and then returned to it in the years after the war. Uh, so the, the Bufords were horse people, and I guess it was John was destined. He was an extraordinarily capable guy. He was known as, as the most knowledgeable man about horses in either army. Uh, he was known for his ability to uh, cut to the chase and, and do in extraordinary intelligence gathering work and in fact uh, did some of the finest intelligence gathering work of, of any officer during the Civil War, during the second Bull Run campaign and unfortunately uh, that Intelligence never got up the chain of command to, to John Pope, but Buford sat up on a bluff and personally counted the flags of uh, Longstreet's corps as they marched by on their way to the Second Battle of Bull Run. Uh, he reported it to up his chain of command to Irvin McDowell, but McDowell never passed that intelligence on to John Pope for reasons that are a mystery 150-some years later. So, you know, Buford had extraordinary talent. He was... Uh, the right place and the right guy uh, at the right time in Gettysburg and uh, was the right guy and uh, designed an incredibly uh, 
effective delaying action that was designed to trade space for time and conducted it so well that it's still taught at West Point to this day. For, for such a impressive person, it's curious that, that Gettysburg is his one shining moment. You mentioned the second bull run. He does good work, but there's no, no uh, payoff. Uh, he spent the first years of the war sort of languishing in the inspector general's office. Uh, when he, at one point, he inspected the Army of the Ohio, which I wrote something about a few years ago, and I was just reviewing uh, that I quoted his reports. As an inspector, he was just what you said. Uh, he was very plain spoken. Here he is reviewing uh, artillery companies um, or, or, or very, yeah, various artillery companies. Uh, they don't drill as well as they should, careless and inattentive. Their mess is filthy and receives no attention. Officers intelligent, but indolent and ignorant of their duties. Non-coms are not of much force. Uh, men do not stay in camp. Noisy, under no restraint. Dirty clothing, filthy camp. He just pulls no punches in his Inspector General reports. That sounds but a man, just like the John Buford I know. <laughs> but he needed... Uh, uh, he could serve the cause better than, than uh, criticizing other soldiers as an inspector uh, to go to the front, and that's what he does. Uh, so he commands – tell us about the, the unit he commands at Gettysburg. How, how many soldiers? What, what's the order of battle there? Uh, I will, but I just want to interject one thing if that's sure. okay, which is Absolutely. Uh, Gettysburg wasn't just his only sole moment of, of glory. I mean, he mm-hmm. fought for 14 hours as a wing commander at Brandy Station and carried the bulk of the fighting there. And then uh, his guys, with an assist from a 5th Corps Infantry Brigade uh, at the Battle of Upperville on June 21, 1863, inflicted the first battlefield defeat on Jeb Stuart's troopers. So, I mean, this is a guy who who really had earned his spurs by the time of the Battle of Gettysburg. And uh, he's he's given an extremely difficult task at Gettysburg. He's been ordered to seize and hold the town. And he has to do so without his largest and most reliable brigade. He, one of his brigades, a reserve brigade, which consisted of the regulars that he had commanded uh, prior to becoming a division commander, was ordered to be detached and uh, left behind in Maryland to guard wagon trains and lines of communication and supply. So with his largest and, and most reliable brigade, he had to uh, come into Pennsylvania with two brigades of troopers that totaled about 2,900 men and uh, a battery of six guns, a horse artillery, and this is what he had to hold back ultimately two full divisions of Confederate infantry uh, long enough for the uh, the 1st Corps and uh, ultimately 11th Corps infantry to arrive on the battlefield on July 1st. So, uh, listeners at home, this is a good time uh, if you're listening to the podcast, click pause, go get your maps of the Gettysburg battlefield, the first day at Gettysburg. I know you have them. Uh, if not on paper or in a book, you can certainly find one online anywhere. So on the first day at Gettysburg, the Confederate troops having invaded Pennsylvania are actually coming back, headed in a southeasterly direction, and Buford's men are facing to the northwest outside the town. They're west and north of the town of Gettysburg. They they occupy vedettes. Uh, there's a word we don't see every day. What is a vedette? It's a French word that means a mounted sentry placed in front of an army. So they're basically mounted pickets. And they they 
so they're a, they're they're a, they're a tripwire. They're a scouting force. They're are they supposed to actually fight against the enemy or just give a they're warning? They're an early warning enemies? system, and their okay. object is to uh, create delay and confusion and deceive the enemy, such that the enemy is uh, its advance is hindered. And it, it specifically at Gettysburg, his his vedette system was intended to provide early warning of the advance of the Confederate infantry. And uh, he designed this covering force action, which is a modern term, but it's, a, it's an accurate description, uh, whereby uh, Buford would trade space for time to allow the infantry to come up. And in, his concept relied on falling back from one ridge to another and ultimately to a third. So uh, it began uh, on the west on Knoxlin Ridge, and then his troopers fell back and and in a larger force uh, to Hers Ridge and ultimately fell back to his uh, chosen defensive position on McPherson's Ridge uh, later that morning and held that position long enough for John Reynolds and the 1st Corps Infantry to arrive. Now, one thing, I'm sure I've read this somewhere, and and many listeners have probably read this somewhere, one reason uh, that Buford's cavalrymen who are fighting dismounted who who are on foot uh, one reason they can hold off much larger numbers of confederate infantry is because they're equipped with the newfangled seven shot spencer repeating rifle Uh, but that is that really true that's a myth and unfortunately it's a myth that's been perpetuated for years Uh, shelby foot picked it up somewhere and repeated it and so therefore it became the gospel truth and it's simply not true uh, I have personally reviewed the ordnance returns of Buford's division from June 30th, 1863. Of the 92% of his companies that reported, not one single Spencer repeating rifle was, was reported. And it would have to be the rifle because the carbine didn't go into mass production until September of 63. So uh, all there would have been at that time of the carbine would have been a handful of prototypes. So it would have had been uh, Spencer rifles, and the only Spencer rifles in the Army of the Potomac were all of the 5th and four companies of the 6th Michigan Cavalry of George Armstrong Custer's uh, 3rd Division Michigan Cavalry Brigade. So uh, there's not one single Spencer reported anywhere in Buford's command, and uh, I think it's fair to say there weren't any. Uh, Instead, they were primarily armed with... uh, single-shot breech-loading sharps carbines, and those that didn't have sharps had similar single-shot breech-loading carbines. So they can they have a slight advantage in that they, they have breech-loaders. They don't have to stand up and ram the, the bullet down the muzzle, but, but carbines are smaller than rifle muskets. They have a shorter range, uh, so they're, they're not really intended to stand up against a, a full-strength infantry line, are they? Correct, and uh, the the issue with the carbines is they have a, a shorter range. Their effective range is only about 300 yards, but even a single-shot breech-loading carbine, a good, an effective trooper could get off six rounds a minute, whereas an effective infantryman could get off three. So you have a much greater rate of fire. So you trade distance for rapidity of fire. This And this assumes that you're... you're well, then there's the other the mathematical factor, of course, that if you have, if you're fighting on foot, shooting at the enemy, someone's got to hold on to the horses. So, so right. you're, you're taking one out of every four guys out of the fighting line. Right, which automatically reduces your effective strength by, by 25%. Uh, 
So let's take Buford's command. You're, you're automatically reducing the effective fighting strength of those two brigades by 25%. That works out to uh, roughly 700 men. So in reality, his stand that he's going to make is with just a little over 2,200. The Confederate troops opposing him are, are part of A.P. Hill's Corps. They come marching down the road toward Gettysburg. Why aren't they guarded by cavalry? If, if cavalry is supposed to screen the army the way Buford is screening the Army of the Potomac, uh, how come Hill's troops are not screened by cavalry? Oh, my. You like opening up cans of worms, don't you? <laughs> and that's I think most listeners know Stuart's off in the wrong place. but uh, Stuart uh, is not where... We might have liked for him to be, but uh, I'll argue until the cows come home and until I go to my grave that Stuart obeyed Lee's orders to the letter. But uh, Lee is in part at fault for that. Lee had plenty of cavalry available to him to screen his army's advance, but chose not to call it to the battlefield in a timely fashion. Well, that, and so, that's, that's I, I think, an interesting point. And that doesn't come up in, in the book we're discussing today, uh, which is about the Union side, but uh, Stuart was not the only cavalry commander in the Army of Northern Virginia. So as as Hill's men are, are marching down the road, they even at that, uh, I was surprised uh, to read that they come marching down without even putting infantry skirmishers up ahead. Uh, they're literally parading into Gettysburg uh, when they first, or toward Gettysburg, when they first encounter Buford's troops. And you can blame Harry Heath for that. Uh, Heath, uh, Heath was not known to be the sharpest knife in the drawer, let's put it that way. And uh, Heath admitted after the battle that he did not believe that there was anything but militia in front of him. And because of that, he was arrogant and did not make the dispositions that he should have made. And consequently, he got caught by surprise. And his command got pretty well battered for it. And that's entirely on Harry Heath's shoulders. So, And he was commanding the first of, of Hill's three divisions that are marching down the Chambersburg Pike into Gettysburg. The, uh, the The... the when they do discover that they're fighting against cavalry and not militia, that causes Heath to deploy his brigades uh, two on each side of the road. And right there, that's what Buford's trying to accomplish. Now, instead of marching down the road minutes away from Gettysburg, they're deployed in line of battle. And that even if there was nothing a time for front. them to shake out into line of battle. Yeah, you've consumed half an hour just doing that. So... Uh, Having done that, though, Hills has Heath's division in front, and they outnumber Buford's troops. They have longer-range weapons, and they're backed up by the next division in line, Pender's division. So this cavalry cannot hold indefinitely. Uh, we'll leave you listeners in suspense for a moment, find out what happens when this overwhelming gray wave starts to uh, uh, drown Buford's cavalry at Gettysburg. How long can they hold out? What are they waiting for? We'll find out when we come back and talk more with Eric J. Wittenberg, author of The Devil's Toupee, John Buford at Gettysburg, A History and Walking Tour. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Eric J. Wittenberg, author of The Devils to Pay, John Buford at Gettysburg, A History and Walking Tour. I've been talking about the delaying action that Buford's Cavalry Division fought on the first day at Gettysburg and the role of dismounted cavalry in holding off A.P. Hill's Infantry Corps. Uh, So, Eric, why are they... They can't hold them off indefinitely. What are they waiting for? Well, they were waiting for the the 1st Corps Infantry, which was coming from uh, the area just north of the the Mason-Dixon line, uh, to arrive and relieve them, and they held out just long enough. Uh, their ammunition was giving out just as the lead elements of, of Wadsworth's division of the First Corps arrived uh, and uh, took their place in the line of battle. And, of course, it was while directing the Iron Brigade into position as uh, when Reynolds was shot and killed. So their job was simply to hold on long enough for the infantry to arrive, and that's exactly what they did. It's it's a near run thing. They're certainly uh, hard pressed. The they, they hold just long enough. They, they fall back. And for most readers, that's where Buford's job is done. They they are out of the story. Uh, Reynolds has been killed. Uh, Doubleday takes over briefly, and uh, and that's it for the cavalry at Gettysburg until the third day when uh, you have the the East Cavalry Field engagements, but. What I found particularly interesting about this book was your description of what happens next. In fact, uh, Buford's day is not done. Uh, His two brigades under Gamble and Devon have held off the rebels. Now the First Corps is in line. They occupy the the front line, McPherson's Ridge. They'll be fighting for a while. But the cavalry has more jobs to do. Where do they go next? Well, and and let's also not forget that the arrival of Robert Rhodes' division of the 2nd, or a Confederate Second Corps uh, gave 
Tom Devon's guys all they could handle, and just as they were about to be driven off the field was when Robinson's division of the first corps showed up. So the the cavalry then took up a position on on the on either flank as it was supposed to do, and uh, Devon's guys unfortunately got driven out by friendly fire late in the afternoon. That's what left the the eleventh corps flank uncovered when Early's division attacked, but. Uh, Gamble's brigade in particular did some phenomenal work holding the left flank of the 1st Corps position during the afternoon phase of the fighting. And at one point, uh, a, a fainted charge, mounted charge by the 8th Illinois Cavalry pretty much saved an entire brigade from getting flanked and probably destroyed. And then a mounted, fainted mounted charge by both of Buford's brigades <clears throat> at the end of the afternoon phase of the fighting, uh, helped to halt James H. Lane's advance, which in turn allowed the, the last remnants of the First Corps uh, to escape from Seminary Ridge and fall back to uh, Cemetery Hill, where a very stout defensive position has, was in the process of being put together by the combined efforts of Governor K. Warren, the chief engineer of the Army, uh oh Howard and, and Winfield Scott Hancock, who by now was on the battlefield as well, uh, having so, been ordered to go there by Meade to take command of the field. So when the First Corps is, is occupying McPherson's Ridge, has, has got to the position on the battlefield, their left flank is in the air, is, is vulnerable. Confederates are trying to overlap them. You've got uh, Heath's division, now Pender's division, attacking. They outnumber uh, even the Union infantry, and they can sweep around the left flank. But Buford's troopers are there. They they uh, have been fighting on foot, but you mentioned a mounted charge. How often did Civil War cavalry actually attack on horseback, waving the saber? Uh, was, was that a frequently used tactic? Uh, when you say that, Jerry, you're referring to attacking infantry? Yes. <clears throat> Uh, rarely, because uh, although that would have been a classic Napoleonic tactical move, the advent of rifled weaponry had made it such that mounted charges of cavalry against infantry didn't work out very well. And there are any number of examples, including uh, Farnsworth's charge at Gettysburg on July 3rd, which I have often likened to uh, the American version of the Charge of the Light Brigade, um, that didn't fare very well at all. And in fact, the only one I can think of that was really overwhelmingly successful were late in the war. There were two of them. There was uh, uh, both by the Union uh, during Sheridan's Valley campaign. One was the char- five brigade front charge at 3rd Winchester that, that rolled up Early's army. And the other was the uh, decisive charge by the, the Union cavalry at the, the climax of the Battle of Cedar Creek. But those are very much the exception and not the rule. Uh, it was a very difficult thing to do, and the Confederates right. probably would have torn them apart, but they, the Confederates had to make dispositions to receive the attack, and that's what stopped them. So I, I remember reading in a book when I was uh, a child, reading a book about Gettysburg that I, I've forgotten who, even who wrote it uh, back in the 1930s or 40s maybe, and it made the claim that when the Union cavalry threatened to attack the Confederate forces who were marching across an open field toward Cemetery Hill, 
the Confederates stopped and formed Square uh, as a Napoleonic There's one army. One source to that, and mm-hmm. and I'd never and I remember reading it, you know, fifty years ago, and then never since wondered oh, that can't be right. Uh, so there's one source that says that did happen. Uh, right. On, on balance, do you think it did happen? Um, I would think that if it had, there would be more accounts of it. So the the likelihood is is that they didn't actually form square. I do believe, uh, and I think it is documented that at the very least, Lane refused his flank to receive that charge, and that in turn, that movement in turn caused him to pause, and that pause was sufficient to allow those Union infantrymen to make their escape. I don't think there was actually a square form because there just aren't any accounts of it other than this one staff officer of Doubledays by the name of Halstead. Uh, But there are accounts that talk about the Confederate line bending, and that was uh, that would have been Lane refusing his flank. And it's uh, one point that's important to note is is that Lane actually was on the receiving end of, an, of a charge of cavalry uh, while conducting an infantry fight at the Battle of Cedar Mountain on August 9, 1862, when the first Pennsylvania cavalry charged his position. So he'd seen this, and he knew what it was like, and he knew what it was what to expect, and. Uh, he, he wisely made dispositions to receive his charge, and that halted his advance. And the uh, the halting of his advance is what allowed the the Union infantry to make its escape. So, so without the uh, little idiosyncratic moment of the, the Napoleonic Square being formed at Gettysburg, uh, still the cavalry was successful by by threatening a mounted charge, slows down the Confederate infantry and uh, accomplishes what's needed. So uh, now everyone uh, who reads about Gettysburg knows Buford makes the stand till Reynolds' men arrives. Uh, if you're like me and you read a book when you were eight years old where they talk about the, the square being formed, you know there was a little more cavalry action. But I would guess there are even fewer of us, uh, I'm one now because I've read your book, uh, who know about the next action that Buford's troops then go into action way over on the left flank of the Union line, uh, protecting what will eventually be Dan Sickles' front. Can you talk right. about what happened there? Yeah, uh, this is now uh, on the night of July 1 and, and then into the early morning hours of July 2, and Buford is assigned the task of guarding the Army of the Potomac's left flank, which is now situated... Uh, somewhere in the vicinity of Little Round Top, John Geary's 12th Corps Division held it during the night of July 2, and then was moved out of there to join the rest of the 12th Corps. Uh, and Sickles then came, was ordered to take that position. And Sickles, of course, didn't like his position and um, was very uncomfortable with it because he didn't like the fact that there was higher ground in front of it that could be dominated, where his troops could be dominated by artillery, much like what had happened to him at the Battle of Chancellorsville. And um, But some of Buford's troopers were the spotted uh, Longstreet's troops on the battlefield for the first time in the morning of July 2nd and reported that and then uh, in, engaged in skirmishing along with, with uh, Berdan sharpshooters and Pitzer's Woods. And uh, then an order came down from Cavalry Corps headquarters where uh, Alfred Pleasanton, the the Corps commander, ordered Buford to take his troopers and mount up and leave the battlefield. And uh, he sent them to Westminster, Maryland, 
largely because Westminster was the terminus of the Western Maryland Railroad, which was to be the principal uh, supply line for the Army of the Potomac. And um, Pleasanton then erred and didn't send further cavalry to guard Sickles' flank, and that only made Sickles more uncomfortable and ultimately caused him to make his move forward to the uh, plateau in the Emmitsburg Road uh, that led to the disastrous fighting for his corps uh, on the afternoon of July 2nd. So it's, it's interesting to see how little things have vast unforeseen consequences. And that order for Buford to, to mount up and leave directly led to Sickles making his move, which in turn directly led to uh, much of the Third Corps being clobbered that day. So Buford goes into battle without his, his the best of his, uh, or the favorite of his three brigades, the regular brigade, and then they uh, leave the battlefield altogether. None of this is Buford's decision. He doesn't decide to leave a brigade behind. He doesn't decide to leave the battlefield. He's just following orders. Correct. But as you say, they, this has these remarkable, unplanned, and uh, unforeseen Results. Uh, what happens to Buford after the battle? <clears throat> well, he continues in command of his division until uh, he left the Army of the Potomac in November of 1863 with the case of typhoid fever that ultimately took his life. Uh, he died of the typhoid fever on December 16, 1863, and was uh, given a, a deathbed promotion to Major General and reputedly said, do they mean it? It's too bad. Now I wish I could live. Uh, Not long after that, he said his last words, which were probably appropriate for an old regular cavalryman. He was quoted as saying, put guards on all the roads and don't let the men run back to the rear. Well, good advice for a cavalry general. Um, We just have a a minute left. You mentioned you're working on the the second Winchester book. When, When should readers look for that to... Uh, to, to become available? Any t- uh, I would say a matter of a few weeks. It went to the printer last week. Okay, so that's, that's coming out soon. Um, in the meantime, we've got The Devils to Pay, John Buford at Gettysburg, a history and walking tour. Uh, I'll be at Gettysburg with the, the folks from the you know, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours in a month or so, and I look forward to having this book with me as we walk around the, the sites on the first day of the battle. It's nice having a walking tour that this is, one, one thing about this is you really can't walk the, the important scenes of the first day. You don't need to drive uh, across the battlefield to get to them. Uh, you absolutely can. And I've tried to, to give a detailed enough tour in the book complete with GPS coordinates that anybody who wants to try and focus on what Buford did that day. They've got the, with the book, they have the tools to do so. So uh, an opportunity people ought to take advantage of. Well, it, it's a book I really enjoyed. Uh, the maps in it are very, very good, very clear and detailed and let you know what's happening. Uh, so definitely a book, listeners, you'll want to get if you're interested in tactical details at all. This one uh, scratches the itch uh, and and I know you will enjoy it. And Eric, uh, good talking with you again. Let's do it sooner than 10 years. Sounds like a plan. All right. Listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.